Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? You know, I'm good. I It just two weeks flies by, and then here we are, and we've got another episode, another great guest, and uh, another chapter of The Bullet Catch. We're at uh, episode 212, chapter 12, and I believe... You can check my math on this. At the end of this episode, episode 212, we'll be halfway through the second season. How is the that season, possible? The season has 24 episodes at the end of 12. We then have 12 more. I'm just very leery because if you remember our one of our favorite podcasts, West Wing Weekly, Joshua Molina, uh, seriously miscalled the the middle of their podcast, although his theirs was a little trickier because it was seven they were going through seven seasons of uh, the West Wing, but I just wanted to make sure that, yes, I believe we are, in fact, at the end of this episode, halfway through season two. And apologies to Joshua Molina for throwing some shade his way. Oh, Act, uh, I, and I include myself loosely in that category. Math is not our area. If we yeah. do math, we wouldn't be doing this. I, I think Joshua can take a little tiny bit of heat. I love so, it. Yeah, not to worry about that. Anyway, so this is a kind of our halfway point. We've got some great things coming up for the second half of the season, which we can talk a little bit about. And then we are starting to put plans in place for what will become season three. More on that to come. But anyway, in this episode, uh, as we've done for the last few episodes, we're working on our theme of how to build a better magician. And we're starting to sort of see a, um, a through line uh, yeah. that, that people are, uh, all of the people that we have talked to have mentioned that um, being yourself and funneling your magic through yourself is the best way to be successful. And certainly um, uh, the, the people that we've talked to up to this point have all agreed on that. But this is, a, I think, a particularly interesting episode because now we've agreed on th that premise that it needs to kind of come through you yeah. and it's not okay to copy things yeah. and copying things, at least initially it's okay, but you got to not do that anymore. How do you do that? And our guest today has a, a like a, um, a framework, if you will, for getting rid of some of the stuff in your act that, um, maybe doesn't completely belong to you or belongs to everybody. And because it belongs to everybody, everybody's doing it. And you look like, you know, one of a group rather than an individual. Yeah. And, and not just some of that stuff. He wants you to get rid of all that stuff. And he's quite honest about how difficult that can be. I think he's a great follow-up to the last episode with uh, Harrison Greenbaum and talking about you're all terrible uh, and his views on originality, you know, don't be a magic cover band. But what we've got today is someone who's saying yes and in, yeah. the, in the perfect improv uh, world where he's saying, yeah, here's how to do that. Which is not easy, but it's easy the way he has laid it out for you. So yeah. if you are using some of those, um, let's call them stock lines, because that's certainly what he's calling them. And he's got a great book out called Out of Stock, which really just walks you through the process of getting rid of all the borrowed, and those are in air quotes, borrowed material out of your act and really making your act your own, which should be the goal, I think. Indeed. But before we get into the details of how to do that, uh, we first asked Ryan to provide a key definition for us. 
for our audience who may not be uh, in the stand-up world themselves or a magician, what what how do you define a stock line? Stock and stolen material are kind of similar, and I would define that as essentially any joke that you didn't write or have written or have permission given to your show, and that would be stolen material. And then a stock line is a joke that has been stolen by so many people that nobody really knows who started it. And very, and very often they can date all the way back to vaudeville or even earlier, but sometimes they can just very rapidly spread throughout the, the text and the vernacular and the literature, even particularly in magic, where people just like, oh, that's the standard line. And it may still only be 20 years old. It may, the, the original creator of that line might still be out there performing it. And you're, no, you're just stealing straight from them unknowingly. Can you, Ryan, give us an example of uh, some of the more common stock lines used by magicians? Right. So a very common one would be saying the line, it's not your fault, I picked you after an audience member makes a mistake. And again, that is a line that Michael Davis, who's an incredible juggler, wrote. And he's still alive and he's still performing. So people think, oh, that's really old. But it's a very versatile line. So that's a common one. Another one would be the magician asks an audience member, particularly a child, to hold out their hand. And they say, no, the clean one, which is just a simple joke there. But the, there's, there's all sorts of ones. And, and they're, they're very prevalent in street performers. They're very prevalent in comedy magic. And a lot of them deal with particular situations that are common in magic. So telling people where to stand, telling people how to handle certain props, Etc. Except the, the feint of "Hey, shuffle the cards." That's enough. I would is stock. That's something that a lot of people have done. And why is this a bad thing? I mean, just from a, a global perspective, I'm just taking the devil's advocate point of view. Why is that bad? Totally. Um, well, there's a moral issue of you're doing material that you didn't write. That's a huge thing. But uh, but there are other issues too, and there are selfish reasons why I think you shouldn't do steal other people's material. And part of that is it just makes your act look that much more generic. If you're going to go in and do lines that other people have said, if people recognize that, it makes your own act look cheaper. And to the point where even if 99% of your show is your own material that you wrote, the moment you say a stock line that somebody in the audience recognizes, oh, I've seen another magician do that or say that. Now they have to ask yourself, well, what else did this performer take? Because once you've shown that you're willing to do other people's material, they don't know. So they might say, oh, well, what maybe that other brilliant thing is just a standard thing too. So it cheapens your entire show. And then from an artistic point of view, every time you're uttering a stock line or a line that you didn't write, that you pulled out of the, the history books to share, you're denying the audience the opportunity to experience a new thought and your new fresh perspective on the world that might never exist without you taking the time to sit down and say, well, this is what I think, or this is what I perceive. The morality thing is its own issue, but those are very good selfish reasons, I think, that you can say, I should not take the easy route of doing stock material. Which gets us to the hard route, you know, and <laughs> it is hard work. You talk about in the book, just sort of brutally forcing a joke uh, out of somewhere yourself or the, or the world. That's a tough thing to do, isn't it? It is tough, but it's also something that can be learned. And it's just the matter of sitting down to do it. I talk a lot in the book and lectures about creativity is just relative. It's about presenting yourself with ideas. And when you sit down and you write out 10 jokes, 
one of those jokes attempts will be the funniest, no matter what, because that's just how relative works. And it's just a matter about presenting yourself with other options than the stock line and then workshopping that and in that process, learning how to create material. And if you commit yourself to setting a higher standard for yourself of saying, I'm not going to do other people's jokes, you kind of have to do this stuff. And over time, it becomes very natural. And then it becomes really fun because when you start doing lines that are your own and you you, you have like this germination of like, oh, I, I had this weird idea and I said this once at this one show and then I worked on a little bit and oh, now it's getting this really good line. And now I'm opening with my show and my favorite thing is getting to this line that I wrote. It, it becomes really addictive really fast. Okay, so let's let's get into the nuts and bolts of this if often a magician will, will buy a trick will buy the right to use a trick will buy the, the elements needed for a trick and it'll come with a script and it, the script is I, I imagine almost everyone who produces one of those scripts says in the script at some point here's the way I do it you should make up your own way of doing it yes and and some of them do that and and some don't so let's use that as just our beginning point you've got a trick a script came to you what are the steps a performer can take? to rid themselves of what is not only a stock line, but in this case, an entire stock script. Right. So the book, the book gets to that in the third section, it's really all talking about how do you take a script and create new material out of it. What I always do is I break down the script into just what the basic expositional pieces are of saying, you know, if we're doing Bill to Lemon, where a signed bill is going to be vanished and then reappear inside of a lemon, right? There are certain things that are going to have to be said such as you're going to have to figure out how to get the bill, how to have it signed, all these things. I would figure out these are the steps that need to happen and, and you need to keep those certain expositions. And then it's like, all right, how do I make that fun? And that's where I layer in the jokes myself and figure out the, the structure. And I would just be like, I need to write my own version of this. And I need to come up with my own story to make it unique to myself. Everything tells you go write your own stuff, but nobody, nothing really taught you how to do that. And so this was a book to teach magicians how to write at speed. So you could, you didn't have to like break down your entire show. You can do it gradually while you're still performing of every show. You're just getting rid of one stock line and replacing a new one until eventually they're all gone, which is what I did. Cause I used to be, I used to do all sorts of stock lines. I, I was a, a Gazo clone doing his essential, his, his whole act really because he sold it and I was 14 and it was really funny. And then gradually I just, I, I started getting very upset at when people would come up afterwards, like, wow, you're so funny. That's so great. And I, I've always just felt guilty because like, this isn't mine. So that's when I got really serious about making sure that I could retain that level of this is really funny and this is good magic, but have that be original. You know, you're reminding me of a story that the late Johnny Thompson used to tell about when he got into magic and I believe he was in Chicago when it happened. And he he knew a magician, comedy magician who was retiring. And the guy said to him, Johnny, I'm going to give you my act for a year and then I'm going to sell it. And Johnny Thompson took the act and performed it every night for a year. And by the end of the year, it was unrecognizable as the original act. It was at that point his act. Uh, and I think it's the analogy of like trying to redecorate a train while it's moving, but you just do it piece by piece. And I wonder how long did it take you to, to make your act stock line free? Was it months, years? It took years. I mean, I'm still, there was one, when I published the book, there was still a couple stock lines still in my show and I had to throw them out because I was like, I can't, I can't be stuck doing this. You know, <laughs> they're in routines that I don't do that often or I was trying to get rid of. And I was like, ah, da, 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 da. Yeah, a big thing too is like, I literally threw away my cups and balls 
because I, I was so tied to doing that routine. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And what's funny is if I go back at tape and watch tape of that routine, I didn't keep that much of Gazo's actual structure of the routine. The, the, the only phases were essentially the ending, but I still didn't like that. So that was a big change. And then it was about, I would say it took about a year, two years, maybe to really start making headway into having everything feel fresh. But then there's still a couple stragglers. And, you know, a lot of times there are things that I didn't realize were stock people. And I would see somebody else do something like, oh, maybe that's not my own idea. And then I would go and try to replace that or just cut it. Your book really does kind of give uh, a performer, doesn't even have to be a magician, could be anybody, but magician specifically, mm-hmm. a, a blueprint uh on how to take a look at their act and eliminate those stock lines. Just in a, you know, you should buy the book folks and read it <laughs> if you're interested in magic, cause it's, um, it's really insightful and it's concise you. and uh, it, you're going to get a lot of stuff out of it that you, you can apply all over the place as Ryan indicated, but just give us a, uh, just sort of a thumbnail of, Hey, here's how you do it. You step A, step B. The process is essentially five steps. The first one is identifying the stock lines. So in magic's case, you watch video or listen to video of your show and you want it to be a real performance because there are things that you're saying and doing when on stage that you're not saying and doing in rehearsal. So you want to make sure it's real. And then you just go through and you write down every time you say a line that is not yours, a stock line, a stolen line, you pause the video, you write down the line, and you also write down whatever happened right before the line, which will be important later on. And you got to be honest with yourself and you got to be liberal with this. And don't be like, well, I only said that because if you said the line on the tape, it goes on the paper. That's step one. Then step two is you go back through all of these lines and you look at you you convert them into contexts meaning what is this line doing i have a very functional viewpoint of scripts as to what lines are accomplishing and so what 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 is this line about and usually it's very functional so for example in our earlier thing if i'm if the line is hold out your hand know the clean one what is the context of that line i need the participant to hold out their hand that is a boring thing to do. This makes it funny, right? A lot of lines are like that. They're just added jokes to, to basic exposition of magic. But there's other ones that can be a little bit more complicated. For example, if, if a joke failed, you might have a line to cover that. So the context would be the joke failed and this is a cover line. Once you've done that, then you kind of determine whether or not these are lines that you say every show or if they're reactionary lines, things slightly change on that. That's the simplest step. And then we get into step four, which is the writing process, where now you you get rid of the original line. You look at the context and you write 10 ideas, 10 joke attempts at that context. So I'm not trying to rewrite the line hold out your hand, know the clean one, because I don't just want to rewrite a new punchline, right? I don't want uh, hold out your hand. Oh, that's a nice, like, I don't want, what are other ways to get someone to hold out their hand? And I'm just going to write 10 different ways to do that on a piece of paper. And I'm not trying to be, to edit. The only rules are they have to, I have to piece it together in my mind. And if I put it together and it seems interesting to me, I put it on the paper. And then at the end you have 10, you go through and you look and one of them will always be the funniest. It may not be 
completed yet. You may need to add an extra punchline or change something, but be like, you know what? That that thing about are you are you uh, are you right hand submissive or left hand submissive, whatever, you know, that has some potential. Let me work on that. And then you can figure out your new joke, whatever it is. And then step five is you go try it. So next time when you're in your show and you get to the point where you say, hold out the right, hold out your hand, know the clean one, you don't say that. You instead said this new joke that you wrote, and then you are hopefully recording that show, and then you can begin to feedback and make that that joke better and expand upon it, or maybe, oh, that didn't work, but you know what, this other one that I wrote is better, and you can repeat it there. Because I do think the hard part with a lot of stock lines is it's actually, it's more difficult to just stop saying something in your show than to replace it with something else. Because if you're used to getting a laugh in a certain spot, to not get that laugh feels weird. So that's why I think getting stock lines out of your show is so difficult. So the big thing here is making sure that you have something to fill it. Even if it doesn't get as big a laugh, the fact that it's yours and the fact that you're getting some response there is going to is going to make that easier for you. Right. And as you said, you know, you're not rewriting the entire act. You're doing it a line at a time and it's going to take as long as it takes. And, and you're just doing it piece by piece, which is, I think, a little less intimidating. Because when we talked to Harrison, uh, I know that Jim had a moment in our conversation which he said, Beth, Harrison, it's really hard. It's really hard to do that. And it, if you're looking at this mountain of of an act, yeah, it is hard. But if you're just going, well, this week, all I'm worrying about is this one moment. Let's fix this moment. Yeah. I owe a lot of, I mean, Harrison's been fighting this fight for a long time. So I'm so glad you interviewed him and anyone listen to this, go listen to Harrison because, you know, he's, he's been lecturing about this, not just in stock lines, but just about originality and magic for a very, very long time. And yeah, he comes from the comedy world. He opened for uh, the late Paul Mooney for years and he knows what it's like. He knows this higher standard that magicians just don't get to. And I, I understand his frustrations and I understand totally where, where that, that comes from. And I think we need to, it's about, it's about setting a higher standard. It starts with ourselves and then it starts with applying it to your friends. So if your friends come up and say, Hey, how was that? Be honest. We're like, well, I don't think you need the stock line. That line's misogynistic. Get rid of it. Right. Like just setting higher standards. Cause it starts at the culture that we're all responsible for. And the only way we're going to get FISM and the magic castle to have higher quality acts and not be booking the people that stock stuff and all this old fashioned stuff is if we start at the base level. So the magicians ourselves do that. And, you know, that starts at you, but my process is very one, one little sliver in this bigger fight. And it's, it, yeah, you're right. It's piece by piece day by day. I'm just going to work on this right now. Like, and not, I'm always, I'm always working on things right now. I'm trying to ex- excise not just pronouns, but saying ladies and gentlemen, because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not completely inclusive. So I've actually, my first thing was I wrote a new joke to say instead of ladies and gentlemen, which I've ran past and is being really good, but I actually need to have another one because now I'm getting later in the show and I've already used that. So I need to have more of them. And so, I mean, it's always just maturing your act, getting it to be better, getting it to be more and more modern and inclusive and better. And that's just a process you gotta, you gotta get into. And you have to evolve with the culture. Yeah, totally. Which is another reason to leave stock lines behind because there are so many of them are old and they don't yeah they're they could be problematic is this your wife you're on a business trip is a misogynistic idea that you're expressing it's a joke you can say it but it's also like it's treating her like a prop it's implying a million things that are just really old-fashioned and yeah we'll get a laugh sure but there are other people that are cringing at you 
And the people that are laughing, it's like, who are you playing for? Part of the reason why I stopped street performing was because I didn't like having to play to the lowest common denominator all the time. So let's get, let me talk a little bit about the Letterman chapter because I'm an enormous David Letterman fan. I'm also a huge fan of magic. And the two really are like oil and water. They just yes, yes. don't work well together. He is a very difficult person. I would never want to be on his show trying to demonstrate a magic or do a magic trick because he's just in a, in the best of all possible ways. It's he's, he's tough on everybody, but I think particularly tough on magicians. So you talk about the Letterman test in your book. Tell me, tell everybody a little bit about what that is and how it works in, in your world. Thank you. I'm so glad you, you love that chapter. Cause I, I think it's really cool. Um, because if you've seen David Letterman, watch magicians and you can find this on youtube the guy is essentially a heckler he he just he calls out everything if if you say something really stupid like all right like um i know there's somebody who did like a triumph routine and it's like yeah this is what happened he's like well this isn't what happened this is you doing what happened right and he does this to you know incredible performers like steve cohen and mm -hmm. you know everyone's been on there and so the Letterman test is asking yourself, all right, look at your script and go through it and imagine if there's any part where David Letterman would cut in to tell you what are you like to, to, to essentially heckle you. And if, the, if so, you need to you need to address that and be like, is this being silly? Is this being dumb? Is this not am I not committed to this? And that's the basic gist of it is to go through it and really just, you know, again, think through of is what I'm saying making sense? Because a lot of times it doesn't, right? Like there's a lot, especially in like mentalism and magic where, you know, like you, you mix like the psychic powers with the power suggestion powers with prediction powers and there's no clear thing. David Letterman would call you out on that. He would be like, well, what's going on? You know, so that's the, the standard that you, you kind of want to hold for yourself of is would David Letterman heckle me on this is essentially the, the thought experiment. Yeah, and uh, why I like it is because you make this point. David Letterman will call you out on that. A lot of other people think it, yeah. but would never say it because right. they're not David Letterman. That doesn't mean that the same thought process or the same objections are not coming up internally for somebody. Totally. They're just, they're just nice enough not to jump in and say something. People so are nice. I, I really people like are polite. The, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I really like the idea of it because while Letterman is Letterman, the rest of us have that sort of internal monologue going all the time. And, and so the, I really like the idea of that. In defense of David Letterman, we did have uh, Jeff Altman on last season, a comedian and magician, Jeff Altman. And, and he's a very good friend of David Letterman. And, and if you go on YouTube and watch uh, Jeff doing magic for David Letterman, you see that he is able to shut Letterman down right away because he's not afraid of him. But he claims that Letterman loves magic and has gotten more and more into magic. I haven't seen it on screen yet, but but that's what he says. But this is reminding me of something a magician named Howard Hamburg said. One thing he wants magicians to do is to start looking at your act from the point of view of the audience and not from the point of view of magician. Because most people would look at, at their act and go, okay, how's a magician going to look at this? What? How am I fooling magicians? What am I doing? He mm -hmm. says, forget about that. Think about the audience and approach it that way, which is essentially what the Letterman test is. Are you just putting yourself in front of a worst possible audience, the scariest yeah. audience? I love Letterman. I, I love his shows. I love his his hosting and, and everything. I don't, I think in the chapter, I'm like, this is, I don't even think I call him a heckler because I'm pretty 
reserved with my term heckler. Uh, he he's just being vocal and he's he's giving feedback and we can learn from that. Hopefully not live on air, but you know. <laughs> so we talk about writing jokes and and replacing stock lines. Uh, you mentioned in the book that there are two jokes a performer should always be writing that you're never done because there's two things you should always be doing. Do you want to talk about those two for just a second? Yeah, absolutely. You should be always writing, essentially trying to improve things that are already working and trying to replace things that are not are the two jokes that I'm always writing. So this is how bits expand, right? It starts with just one line that you write and then it's like, all right, you add a tag, that's getting a laugh. Okay, you add a tag and you keep going till it gets, it gets smaller. And then the other thing is, is replacing things that are not working. There's usually parts in your show where, all right, this, this joke isn't hitting anymore, or this feels low, or this feels awkward. And I usually don't discover these till I'm like listening to tape. And it's like, oh man, yeah, I don't like that moment anymore. And I'll pause and, and write it. And then it's the, it's the same process as to how to replace stock lines. I just go and sit down and, and write 10, 10 ideas and then pick the best one. And it's not always 10. I just, I usually write till I find something that's usable and then I'll use that. So I'm, I, I consider my, my getting rid of stock lines to be my first renaissance. And right now I think I'm actually going through my second renaissance where I'm really excising a lot of the, the harsher elements and a lot of the cynicism and, and snarkiness from my act and just trying to become a little bit more human. Um, so add jokes, make them funny, but also you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're playing to your strengths and that you're not being somebody that you're not, because I don't think audiences really want that. Yeah, that's really the crux of the biscuit, isn't it? Being yourself, which is a very uh, challenging thing for some performers, myself included. It took me a long time to understand the need to figure out who I am in front of people, which is essentially a heightened version of, of who I am in reality. But uh, the, the, imitating other people until you get there is okay, but you, you, you have to you have to, if you want to be a, a, a great magician or a great artist, you, you got to figure out a way to bring yourself in and make yourself the key piece of the puzzle. Yeah. The thing that I took away that I really think I can use all the time is the Letterman test. Yeah. It seems uh, simple because it is. We all know that personality. We all know that look uh, that he gives, just listening to what he might say to what you're doing. In just, you know, how would David Letterman respond to this book title? How would he respond to this joke? How would he respond? I certainly think that as, as a litmus test, uh, it has incredible value to performers. Um, I also, you know, really like the idea of coming up with 10 replacement lines mm -hmm. for a stock line. And, uh, you know, one of them is going to be the funnier of the group. Uh, right. and I just like that. I like the idea of like, here it is. It, it's you just do this. You listen to your act. You're recorded. You find the stock line and now you're right. 10, you know, but on a more global level, if you're, if you need to brainstorm an idea, brainstorm 10 ideas, because there's a tendency to go, I need an idea. Oh, there's an idea. And then you're off and running. It's like, well, no, you wait a second. Soon. Yeah. You stop too soon, which is, yeah. I believe something that Eugene Berger used to say, the magician stopped thinking too soon. Yeah, th that's absolutely true. Eugene did say that. And that's certainly a tenant of my improvisational background is that don't go necessarily with your first uh, think, think for a second and, and, you know, 
second, third idea may be better than your your very first idea, although sometimes not. But in general, we were we were taught to think about it for a second before you jump. Yeah, very good advice. Can't recommend the book highly enough. It's by Ryan Kane. That's K-A-N-E. It's called Out of Stock. There'll be links for it in the show notes. You can just type it in Ryan Kane out of stock and you will find it uh, immediately. Well worth picking up. But enough of all that. Let's get down to something that is probably chock full of stock lines. That'd be the... <laughs> That's new, nice. the next chapter of uh, the bullet catch. So this would be chapter twelve. If chapter you were scoring from home, John, any chance you're willing to bring us up to date? I sure can. In chapter eleven, we found out as Eli had breakfast with Harry what had happened the night before about how uh, Harry had revealed how the bullet catch is done and sort of debunked the murder conspiracy around Terry Alexander, which really screws up Jake's movie. Eli watches a, a kind of a sad video of Terry Alexander doing sort of a confessional thing to the camera that he found online. Jake then uh, called in to say things are very tense in the movie set because of what Harry has done. And um, he's wondering if the only way that movie will succeed is if the star dies. And at that point, we jump right into chapter 12. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 12 I visit my ex-wife about as often as I visit my dentist, and with the same level of enthusiasm. My dentist, who I've gone to my entire life, still hands out candy to anyone who has a perfect checkup. As the years have gone by, he's needed to hand out less and less candy to more and more patients. Not a bad racket, really. My ex-wife also offers sweets in the form of sour, hard candies that sit in a crystal bowl on the edge of her desk. In all the years I've visited her office, the number and relative positions of the candies has never changed. I imagine by this point they have all fused together into one tempting piece of sour, hard candy which is also an apt, if overly harsh, description of my ex-wife. Deirdre was not historically a happy recipient of the unannounced drop-in, but I figured catching her unaware might provide the greatest unedited flow of information. Warn her I was coming, and she would want to know why, and then clam up and make the trip unproductive. Show up without an appointment, and she might start talking before she realized what she was doing. After Trish had left the bar the night before, amid Jake's meltdown, I felt so bad about how she was feeling and the situation Dylan's sudden death had thrown her into. She seemed so helpless and lost. Nothing like the vibrant woman who had dazzled me in high school and so brightened the reunion. Plus, after my forced meeting with Mr. Lime, I was more than a little curious about what the police knew and what they thought they knew and where they might be headed with the investigation. Since relations with Uncle Harry were strained from breakfast, I figured this morning was as good a time as any to dive in and start digging. Knock, knock, I said jovially as I knocked on the wooden doorframe to Deirdre's office. Busy, go away, she replied without looking up from her desk. And thus did history's first attempt at the knock-knock joke end in abject failure, I said, ignoring her gruff anti-welcome and taking a seat in one of the two chairs in front of her paper-strewn desk. Seriously, Eli, take a hike. I've got a ton of depositions to go through and no time for your nonsense. 
she pulled back a wisp of blonde hair that had taken it on the lamb from her well-coiffed hairstyle and gave me a hard, unwelcoming look. It was like coming home. I'm fine, thanks. And how are you? I asked, knowing I was pushing it but enjoying it too much to stop. What's it going to take for you to go away and go away right now? Just one or two quick questions, pure and simple. Your questions are never pure and rarely simple. If Oscar Wilde had had you as an attorney, he never would have gone to prison. If Oscar Wilde had you as a husband, he would have welcomed prison. I gave her my biggest, broadest smile. The magic never dies, does it? Eli, what do you want? Okay, all playful banter aside, your husband paid me a visit earlier this week, I began, but she quickly cut me off. My husband paid a visit to a lot of people this week. What's it to you? I'm just wondering who else he talked to besides me. She capped her pen and set it on the desk. Why? I'm curious. Yeah, you and a bunch of dead cats. I'm curious who else he talked to, what he found out. Why aren't you talking to him? He doesn't like me. Nonsense. He adores you, in his own way. She gave me a long look. Why are you curious? I didn't answer, and I made the mistake of looking down at my feet, which led to a longer, more intense look from her. You're not canoodling with the widow, are you? Hardly, I said, and stay out of Harry's lexicon. Aren't you still going out with that psychic? What was her name? Megan. Megan seemed like a nice girl, sort of kooky, but you always had a thing for kooky. Present company accepted. Anyway, we're on a bit of a break. You broke up? I'm sorry to hear that. She looked genuinely concerned, which threw me. Being on a break is not the same as breaking up, I said, sounding far more defensive than I had intended. We're just taking some time off to reassess and regroup. Well, I hope it works out, Eli, she said. I really do. Well, thank you. I said, feeling any power I might have had in the conversation draining away quickly. I thought a quick subject detour might get me back on track. Anyway, back when we were married, I said, I occasionally helped you out on a case or two. I thought I could do the same here. She looked ready to dispute this, but we both knew she couldn't. With my magician's knack for puzzles, I had actually been very helpful a couple of times which may have had an impact on the speed with which she had risen in the department. Helped out, she said, clearly trying to downplay my role in her success. Sure, I said, like the case of the poison pimento. You are the only person in the world who calls it that, she said flatly. But you have to admit, I did help, I countered. Yes, Eli, you did help, she admitted. In that local murder case, a victim's last words have been recalled as, I'll live, I'll live. But I was the one who pointed out that he could have actually been saying, I'll live. When a jar of poisoned green olives with the killer's fingerprints were found in the victim's refrigerator, the case was quickly closed. Anyway, I was wondering who else your husband spoke with about Dylan LaSalle's death. She took the cap off her pen again. Eli, I can't give you that information. He talked to some of the victim's work associates. 
He talked to your buddy Howard Washburn from the reunion. He did his job. I cocked my head to one side. He talked to Howard Washburn from the reunion? Of course. After the scuffle he'd had with LaSalle, it seemed prudent. Of course, I said. That does seem prudent, to talk to Howard Washburn. I would have done the same thing. But you know as well as I do, the DA's office does not comment on open cases, not even to our ex-husbands, especially to our ex-husbands. I know, I said, trying my best to sound contrite, but I thought it was worth a shot. I'll let you get back to work. I got up and headed toward the door. And Eli? I stopped in the doorway and turned back to her. Yes? Spend less time canoodling with the widow and more time reassessing and regrouping with that Megan, okay? You got it. She gave me a quick thumbs up, and I returned it and doubled it using both hands and both thumbs. And then I hustled out of her office, racking my brain, trying to figure out who in the world my pal Howard Washburn was and how to get in touch with him. After digging out my old school yearbooks, I discovered that, amazingly, I had gone to school with Howard Washburn for 12 out of 12 years. Neither one of us ever really rose to the top of the pecking order, and I don't remember our paths ever crossing. I looked long and hard at his graduation photo and could say with a clear conscience his face didn't ring a bell. Once I knew who he was, I turned to the more pressing question of where he was. I once again turned to the Internet, this time opening my rarely used Facebook account. After much clicking and searching and scrolling, I was able to track him down. Howard Washburn's smiling face beamed back at me from his Facebook page. He still looked like his graduation photo, only now with the addition of several pounds and a few gray hairs. The About section on his page said he was the owner of Washburn International Shipping and Delivery, and moments later, I had him on the phone. Eli Marks, he said with enthusiasm once I introduced myself. Wow, that's a blast from the past. Fifteen years, huh? Where did it go? Where did it go indeed, I agreed. I'm surprised I didn't see you at the reunion, he said, diving into the conversation like we were old pals who hadn't spoken in a week. Oh, I was there, I said. We must have missed each other. Looks like it. My wife and I spent most of the night out on that observation deck. Hell of a view, don't you think? Well, that's what they tell me, I said. I'm sorry I missed you. Me too, buddy, me too. What are you up to these days? I was really being thrown off by his chummy attitude. I couldn't pick the guy out of a lineup, and he was acting like we had been frat brothers. Oh, still doing the magician thing, I said. Really? You're still at it? Well, good for you. I remember taking some classes with you at that magic store back in, like, fourth grade or something. Wasn't it owned by your uncle or something? That's right. He's still at it. This was starting to drive me crazy. He's saying he took some magic classes with me, and I don't have a single memory of the guy. Good for him. Good for him, he said. So what can I do for you, Eli? His tone becoming a tad more businesslike. Well, Howard, I was calling because the police came by and talked to me about Dylan LaSalle the other day. Yeah, they talked to me too, he said. Hell of a deal, huh? Yeah, it was very surprising, I said. Oh, 
Not all that surprising, he continued. The way that guy operated, something bad was bound to happen to him someday. It was just a matter of time. So you had dealings with him other than the scuffle at the reunion? Oh, that was nothing, he laughed. He'd had too much to drink or snort or something, and he started getting handsy with my wife. I told him to back off, and he exploded. He does that all the time. So what was your relationship with Dylan? The same one he had with anyone who'd made some cash after high school. He came to me with a business venture, a wild-ass idea. He hit up everybody who had disposable income. He must have hit you up once or twice. Not that I remember, I said, suddenly feeling a tad invisible myself. Apparently, my post-high school success had not put me in a tax bracket that would make me of any interest to Dylan LaSalle. Well, the first time he came by, I gotta tell you, I was sort of thrilled, Howard went on. I mean, back in high school, he was a pretty big deal. Whereas, I don't think I made much of an impression outside of a select group of people. You know how you can tend to disappear in high school. Yes, I do. So, did you ever end up working with him? This produced a pause from his end of the phone. I waited a few moments and then said, Howard, you still there? Yeah, yeah. Eli, can I ask why you want to know? Now it was my turn to take a pause. I'm looking into this for his wife, I lied. Turns out she didn't really know what he was into, and I'm trying to help her find some answers. Well, that's a decent thing to do. You see, Eli, he said, his voice getting quieter, the police wanted to know the same thing. I was less inclined to talk to them, but since we go way back, and since you're doing this for his wife, I think we can talk. I don't feel comfortable doing it on the phone. Do you mind coming down to the office? I said that wasn't a problem and jotted down the address he gave me. It'll be great to see you again, man, he said, and I almost responded with, it will feel like the first time for me, but he had already hung up. Traffic getting into downtown was light, but something must have been going on somewhere because the first two parking ramps I drove by had their red neon full signs flashing. I finally pulled into what I always called the Dayton's ramp, even though Dayton's department store had been closed for years and years. But in my mind, the ramp's name had never changed. Up and up I went, passing full signs at each level. Finally, the spiral drive spit me out on the roof deck, which seemed to be the repository of all the empty stalls in the entire ramp. I pulled into one, stepped out of the car, and froze. In my effort to find a parking spot, I hadn't remembered the top of the ramp was wide open and put me ten stories above the sidewalk. The only thing between me and a ten-story fall or jump was a short retaining wall. The openness of the upper deck, the nearness of the short wall, and the glimpse I had of the height I had driven to all combined to make my head spin. I considered climbing back in the car and driving back down. I mean, I seriously considered it. It really seemed like my best option. But after several sessions with Dr. Baki, I felt like the only way to get over this was to get through it. So rather than climb back into the relative safety of the car, because, I mean, really, what would keep me from driving straight through that wimpy retaining wall? I did the more mature thing. I ran from my car to the elevator like I was being chased by rabid weasels. 
On the ride down in the elevator, I was able to catch my breath as the panic finally began to subside. I had stopped trembling but was still perspiring and would not have been surprised if passers-by had commented on the loud racket my thumping heart was making. The suddenness of the attack had really taken me by surprise, and as I walked the short distance to the office building where Howard Washburn's company was located, I began to realize the impact these attacks were starting to have on my day-to-day life. I made a mental note to talk to Dr. Baki about ratcheting up the therapy, while at the same time, I made another note to find a better way of describing it. Washburn International Shipping and Delivery turned out to be a small office on the fourth floor of one of the older buildings in downtown Minneapolis. Once upon a time, it had been a Masonic temple, but for dozens of years, it housed an eclectic mix of arts organizations, nonprofits, and small oddball businesses that somehow defied the ups and downs of the economy. The company name was stenciled on the glass of the office door. I turned the wobbly doorknob and would not have been surprised if it had come off in my hand. It didn't, and I stepped into the reception area for Washburn International Shipping and Delivery. Reception area might be overstating the case. The cramped room included a faded, saggy-looking couch, an old wooden desk, and stacks and stacks of cardboard boxes with foreign stamps and instructions scrawled across most of them. Hello? My voice cracked a bit, so I said it again, louder this time. There was no response. A door at the far end of the room led either into a closet or another office. There was a light coming from that room, so I figured it must be an office. Howard? It's Eli, I said as I crossed the room. The office door was ajar, so I gave it a slight push and peered into the office, getting what turned out to be my first and last look at Howard Washburn. Finally seeing him in person, I did have to admit I sort of recognized him. He did look a tad familiar. Everything, of course, except for the bullet hole in his right temple. Hey, Marks, you must have homicide on your speed dial by now said Homicide Detective Fred Hutton's partner, Homicide Detective Miles Wright. Then he smirked at his own line as if Don Rickles himself had said it on a Dean Martin celebrity roast. Detective Wright, you are a funny, funny little man, I said dryly. I was seated on a folding chair someone had found and set out in the hall outside the offices of Washburn International Shipping and Delivery. Wright had made several trips in and out of the office, along with a number of people who I assumed were part of the homicide investigation unit. I'd used my cell phone to report the body, and the response had been swift. Uniformed cops, followed by the homicide detectives, followed by a representative from the district attorney's office. That representative was my ex-wife. She'd only made a cursory remark to me on her way into the office, but I had been told to please wait as she wanted to speak to me before I left. And so I sat, and I thought. I thought about Howard Washburn. I thought about how his body looked so still, slumped in his chair, his head tilted back at an odd angle, his face lit by the cool glow from his computer monitor. For some reason, he had been wearing gloves, Gloves that would have been perfect for keeping your hands warm on a blustery winter day, but in early summer, they would more likely have been stifling and uncomfortable. 
While waiting for the police, I had carefully stepped around his desk to see what was on his computer screen. It was clear one of his last actions had been to open a new blank Word document. The final words he had typed glowed out at me from the monitor. I'm sorry. The computer program had thoughtfully underlined the first word in red, letting him know he'd made one final spelling error. I shook my head when I read it, making a silent promise. If I ever chose to end it all, I would make sure the second-to-last thing I did on this earth would be to proof my suicide note. Because, I mean, come on. Deirdre came out of the office conferring with her husband, homicide detective Fred Hutton. She had hyphenated her married name with his, something she hadn't done with me, giving her the mouthful name and title of Assistant District Attorney Deirdre Sutton Hutton. I once asked her if she did it for comic effect. The language with which she replied suggested otherwise. So we're not calling it suicide, we're calling it murder? He was saying in a low voice as they stepped into the hall. For the time being, until we get the reports back, I'd prefer we don't call it anything but a suspicious death, she said, not bothering to mimic his quiet tone. And the less said to anyone about it, and I'm talking about the press here, the better. I recognized the finality of her tone, and apparently so did homicide detective Fred Hutton, for he turned and went back into the office without another word. Deirdre glanced over at me and then pulled a compact from her stylish but efficient purse. She made a quick check of her hair and makeup, returned the compact to the purse, and turned her attention to me. Eli, so, here we are again. Yes, here we are. I stood up. I sensed where she was headed and decided the best offense might be a strong defense. Look, I can't possibly be in any trouble. I found the body. I reported it. End of story. Deirdre gave up smoking years ago, but I could tell by her body language that she would not have turned down a proffered cigarette at this moment, assuming I had one to proffer, which I didn't. I dug into my pocket and found a pack of gum. I offered it to her, and she waved it away and began walking toward the elevator. I followed. As you know, she said, I'm not one for gossip, but I have to tell you, that for the ex-husband of the assistant district attorney to continually find himself at crime scenes after the crime has been committed, I offered in my defense. Yes, your timing is appreciated, she said. Not helpful, but appreciated. She pressed the call button for the elevator. But be that as it may, your continued appearance at crime scenes is setting tongues to wagging as I believe your dear Aunt Alice used to say. She had nailed Aunt Alice's phrase, and we both couldn't help but smile. Aunt Alice never had an unkind word for anyone. I remember when the subject of Hitler had come up when I was a kid, the worst that she could say about him was, that man was bad news. Well, I said as the elevator door slid open, it's not as if I'm doing this on purpose. I held the door for Deirdre and pressed the button for the lobby. My question is, why are you doing it at all? What exactly brought you to the office of Howard Washburn this afternoon? I thought it best not to tell her she was the one who had steered me toward Howard Washburn. So instead, I told as much of the truth as would keep me in her relatively good graces. 
the same reason your husband went to talk to him, to find out about what was going on with Dylan LaSalle. And did you find out anything? I was surprised by the question. Why would you think I might? Because I found oftentimes people will tell their friends things they won't tell the police. Actually, when I talked to him on the phone, he said there was something about Dylan he wanted to tell me. What was it? He didn't want to tell me on the phone, and by the time I got here, he had become considerably less talkative, as you may have noticed. We stepped out of the elevator and made our way through the cramped lobby. I held the massive glass doors open for her, and we moved out into the humid air and traffic sounds of Hennepin Avenue. Where are you parked? I asked. Dayton's ramp, she said, gesturing down the block. It was nice to see I wasn't the only one who hung on to that old name. I've got to tell you, I said, when I spoke to him on the phone, he didn't seem in the least bit sorry. Gabby, but not sorry. She glared at me. Did you read what was on his computer? I was waiting for the police, and there was no other reading material in the office. We walked quietly for a few moments. Finally, she sighed and said, Okay, so what does your gut tell you? I suppressed a smile, glad to see that in her own way, she was acknowledging that I could be helpful, if only on occasion. Well, if it wasn't a suicide, it certainly was made to look like a suicide. Yes, I think it was supposed to look very much like a suicide, but some parts don't fit. We stood on the corner and waited for the light to change. Why, for instance, was he wearing gloves when he shot himself? Explain that. Probably for the same reason the assistant was dressed like a clown in Moritz's famous donkey disappearance illusion. Deirdre looked over at me like I had started speaking another language. Say what? It's this really old trick some of the smarter people in the magic community were trying to reverse engineer, I explained, because there are written descriptions of the effect, but nothing on how it was done. And one of the guys, I think it was Alan Wakeling, pointed out that the effect required an assistant dressed as a clown. And he concluded the only reason you would dress him like a clown would be because you needed to switch him with someone else, also dressed like a clown. And this applies to my question, how? The only reason he was wearing gloves was because someone else was wearing gloves. That is, assuming it wasn't a suicide. She stopped in her tracks. Thankfully, we had made it across the street so no cars ran into us, but several other pedestrians gave us dirty looks as they were forced to suddenly maneuver around us. So someone else shot him while wearing the gloves, she mused. Then they took off the gloves and put them on Howard Washburn because the gloves would show traces of a recently fired gun, traces which would not have been found on his bare hands if he hadn't pulled the trigger himself. It's a theory, but for that matter, so is the idea of the second clown. There might be traces of DNA on the inside of the gloves. I shrugged. Maybe, but anyone smart enough to switch the gloves was probably also smart enough to wear thin plastic gloves under the gloves. She nodded in agreement, and we continued walking. This is a very frustrating case, she finally said. Her tone had lost all of its official harshness, leaving only her normal, everyday level of harshness. We were right on the edge with this Dylan LaSalle, and then he goes and gets himself killed. Right on the edge of what? We'd reached the parking ramp, and the elevator doors were just opening as we approached. 
We stepped in, and Deirdre punched the floor button with far more effort than was necessary. Dylan LaSalle was a really shady character, Eli, she said as she turned to me. We were never able to pin anything on him, but he traveled in nasty circles with some really bad people. And then, about two weeks ago, he started making overtures. He was a composer? I knew the joke was a bad one, but it was out of my mouth before I could stop. Surprisingly, Deirdre didn't let it phase her. His attorney started asking us questions about making a deal, getting immunity, turning state's evidence. He wouldn't get specific, but said he was just testing the waters. He said his client was looking for a way out and wanted to know if we'd provide it. A way out of what? She shook her head. We don't know. We were supposed to meet with him this week. The elevator door slid open and she stepped out. I turned and followed her, and then I realized with a suddenness that took my breath away that we were on the roof. I stood there, frozen. This is me, she said. Sorry, I should have asked what floor you were on. I could see straight across the flat roof to the short retaining wall that surrounded the ramp roof. The stumpy wall was on my left and on my right and my knees began to buckle. I turned to go back into the elevator, but the doors had already shut. I closed my eyes, tightly. Eli, are you okay? I took a deep breath, thinking about the breathing exercises I had gone through with Dr. Baki. That seemed like a long, long time ago. Eli? There was a distinct and foreign note of concern in her voice. The breathing exercises didn't seem to be working and I felt like I was gasping for air. Deirdre, I need to ask a favor, I was able to finally sputter out. Sure, what do you need? Can you take my hand? My eyes were clamped shut, but I extended my right arm in the general direction of her voice. My hand hung in space for a moment, and then I felt her hand clasp mine. The relief was palpable. I'm having something of a panic attack, I explained, turning to her so she could see my eyes were closed. The first thing I need you to do is walk me to my car. Eli, if you're having a panic attack, I don't think you should be driving. I agree, which brings us to the second thing I need you to do. I need you to drive me and my car down to the bottom of the ramp. Once I get off the roof, I think I'll be okay. Amazingly, Deirdre didn't question any of this. With a gentleness I hadn't felt from her in years, she took my keys and guided me toward the car. Even with my eyes closed, I could sense how close I was to the retaining wall and the edge. Open the door, please. Now would be good, or sooner than now if you can manage it. Just about there, she said softly. I heard the snick of the passenger door unlocking felt the edge of the door as she opened it, and then I ducked down to climb, really climb like a monkey, into the car. Once inside, I heard the reassuring sound of the passenger door closing. I settled into my seat and found and fastened my seatbelt. Through it all, I kept my eyes shut tightly, but in my mind's eye, I could see through the windshield, could see the useless retaining wall, and could sense the distance between my body and the ground ten floors below. Not a moment too soon, Deirdre was in the driver's seat. The car was started, and I felt the vehicle back away from the wall and then turn toward the exit. 
After we had circled down and down for several moments, I peeked one eyelid open. We were probably at about the fifth floor, but the tight space of the downward spiral was already helping me to relax. I looked over at Deirdre and could see she was alternating between looking where she was going and looking at me. Well, she said, this is new. I'm just trying it out to see if I like it. Renting with an option to die. Seriously, Eli, are you seeing someone about this? Her tone was sharp and demanding, which in anyone else would have been off-putting. But for Deirdre, it was the closest thing she had toward warmth. Yes, I'm seeing a therapist. How often? Frequently. Actually, in about an hour. We had made it down to ground level. Deirdre pulled the car into an empty handicapped spot. Are you sure you're okay to drive? She said as she shifted the car into park. Now that I'm on the ground, I'm good to go, I said. Still pale around the gills, but really, I'll, I'll be fine. She gave me a long, hard look. Okay, but send me a text when you get to the therapist. Thanks, but I'll be fine. Do you want me to give you a ride back up to your car? She shook her head and then paused. You take care of yourself, she said, swinging the car door open and sliding out. I was taken aback. It wasn't exactly warm, but it wasn't the coolness she usually projected. Thanks, I said, my voice coming out as more of a whisper than intended. That really helped. But she was already out of the car and heading toward the elevator. I feel so sorry for Eli with his panic attacks because they were for quite a while my panic attacks, although I'm better now, as is Eli. But it's no fun all of a sudden being thrown into that situation and having to deal with being uh, in the middle of your phobia and trying to get away from it. As we all learned the same time. Yeah. Uh, from Dennis Palumbo, if you're afraid of spiders and the baseball goes under the house, go buy a new baseball. And exactly uh, right. this chapter also contains the first mention uh, in the series of Moritz's famous uh, donkey disappearance illusion, uh, which most people don't know. And it isn't really that big a deal, except it, it, it involves dressing someone up like a clown. And as uh, Eli points out, the only reason they're dressed as a clown is because you needed somebody who could be switched with someone dressed like a clown. And that's um, why anytime I see a magic trick now that has someone in sort of a weird costume, I go, well, what are you doing? Is this, is this the donkey disappearance? Is that, what, is that what they're doing there? Anyway, so next episode, we're going to continue to talk about what magicians are doing right and what they're doing wrong. Yeah, and to help us out, we've got another great magician who's been producing a podcast uh, for the last few years on that very topic, Kayla Drescher. Now, I'm not sure if we've mentioned that podcast, Shazam, before. I probably have. It's terrific and it's really worth subscribing to. It's worth going back and listening to the past episodes. I think they're in season four right now. But even better than listening to the podcast is talking directly with Kayla. And that's what we're going to be doing next episode. It's uh, Shazam, but it's spelled S-H-E. It's Shazam. Shazam. So Shazam. Uh, although she doesn't, in the interview, uh, I, I didn't hear her say Shazam. It was Shazam. But, but if you're looking for it, and you should, because it's fascinating stuff. Uh, it's S-H-E-Z-A-M, Kayla Drescher. And if you want to listen to that ahead of her episode, I'll, uh, if I remember, I'll put a link in the show notes to, to get you right there. And uh, while you're clicking on show notes, please go ahead and rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you're on. Someone just sent me some links 
to uh, some really nice reviews that we've gotten over on uh, Apple Podcasts, which I was very appreciative of. Thank you so much for writing those nice things because that apparently helps other people find us and listen to us, which would be great. So if you get a chance, rate and review. While you're uh, there reading the reviews, make sure you go ahead and subscribe to our podcast because that too helps people find us and we'd love to be found. Absolutely. Anyway, that's it for this episode. We'll see you next time in episode, lucky episode 213 uh, with friend of the podcast, Kayla Drescher. Goodbye, everybody. Take care, folks. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.